Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's show, we'll talk to senior Haaretz columnist Alon Pinkas about China's role in the war in Ukraine. But before that, we are going straight to Kiev. The ice is coming, the sun is zooming in, into a stock running, the wheat is going to a nuclear error. Anshel Pfeffer, senior analyst and correspondent for Haaretz, is joining us today from Kiev, where he's been reporting on the war in Ukraine for the past several days, writing excellent stories and commentary on Haaretz.com that we invite all of our listeners to go and read. Hi, Anshel. What's the situation there today? So, uh, good afternoon, Amir. Today, is, it's quite calm and quiet outside here in central Kiev. Uh, we've been here, uh, our photographer, Ohad Zweigenberg, and myself for now for three days. And we're now, after the second consecutive night in which there were no reports of air or missile strikes in, in and around Kiev, there was quite a major one uh, two days ago, uh, shortly after we arrived here. But it does seem that the big battle for Kiev and reports and the fears that the Russia would uh, come into the capital of Ukraine with massive armored columns and drive all the way into the center of city and have uh, their victory parade on, on Maidan Square. The, the, those fears seem to now have been unfounded. The Russians don't seem to be making much progress outside Kiev. They do, they do have advanced forces, uh, both to the west and to the east of the city. But um, the Ukrainians are claiming that they've been pushed back quite, uh, quite a bit from what we saw Uh, just yesterday, on Saturday afternoon, uh, on the west side of the city, there was still Ukrainian rockets being fired towards the Russian position, so they didn't seem to be that far away, but they, they're not making progress, and it doesn't feel here in the city that the city is going to be encircled or be under siege. We arrived Friday morning um, from the southern uh, area, from, from, the, from the main highway, uh, which goes down all the way to Odessa on the Black Sea, and We drove up, and it was really the, the road was clear. there was no there, obviously there were military roadblocks coming into the city, but beyond that, there was no sign of any problem in getting in or out of Kiev, certainly not from its main south uh, entry or exit. So tell me a bit about the the journey. You basically arrived into Ukraine from Moldova in a quite dramatic fashion. And of course, People who have been reading your stories uh, saw the, the journey that you guys made. But uh, share with our listeners a bit. How does one get to Kiev today? Well, it wasn't uh, that dramatic, but it was quite interesting because we crossed over from, from Kishinev and then from the Moldovan border in an ambulance, which uh, in recent weeks has been taking out uh, various wounded and, uh, and you know, people who, who can't make it out in, uh, in regular vehicles. We, They were going back into uh, into southern Ukraine towards Odessa empty so we hitched a ride with them across the border uh, and our main our main first port of call was in, in Odessa which is normally just two or three hours drive away from Kishinev but or choosing hours it's now called uh, it took us a bit longer than that so quite a lot longer than that because of roadblocks and various other wartime uh, delays but um, Odessa also uh, was was quite calm and in a, in, in a very similar way to what Kiev is looking now it was filled with the anti-tank uh, obstacles and roadblocks 
and lots of army uh, preparing for possible Russian invasion. The famous port of Odessa was obviously blocked for uh, from every from every possible direction, and the, the the beaches have been mined. At least that's all we told. We couldn't see the actual mines because we couldn't get down to the beaches. But that we're told that the, the beaches are now are mined, and um, it really looked like a set for a war film because you had all these. Ukrainian soldiers there in you know in full combat gear with the roadblocks with the sandbags and the and the anti-tank obstacles and some of their own heavy vehicles waiting there but as as in Kiev also Odessa the third largest city in Ukraine there hasn't actually been a Russian presence there wasn't what from what was been reported an attempt to land Russian troops on one of the beaches near Kiev and so and so near Odessa which failed there's also there's another of the big cities here which has been waiting and preparing for the invasion which has yet to come. Mm-hmm. And it, one of your interesting columns from there described it basically uh, as a twilight zone kind of situation. Everybody's waiting for Putin's army and preparing, but so far life goes on. Yeah, life goes on. The food stores are not as, uh, not as full as usual, but there's no major shortage uh, of food. The electricity water you know phone communications are, are all working the big difference is it looks it basically looks like uh, you know like one of the coronavirus lockdowns that all the shops and offices are closed except for food stores most of the hotels except really two or three hotels in which journalists are staying but you do have civilians walking around walking their dogs taking exercise a lot of the civilians have, have left uh, for, for, for other parts of Ukraine and also gone outside Ukraine as, as refugees but the city is functioning we also went uh, we drove an hour and a half east along the the, the Black Sea coast of Mykolaiv which is a, which is also a major city of half a million people quite close to the front lines a city which the Russians have tried very hard to capture since the, this war began unsuccessfully and that's that really is a city on the front line and even there we saw many groups of, uh, of local uh, volunteers working very hard to And I think successfully to keep the city functioning, whether it's for old and uh, old people who are isolated at home, bringing them food and hot meals and medicine, keeping uh, the hospitals running, uh, also supporting the army in various ways with, with supplies. So I, th- I think uh, we, we can talk about the military situation, and I've written a lot about it, obviously, but what really is most amazing is From being in so far in three large Ukrainian cities in Odessa, Mikolaev and Kiev is, is really how the, how the civilian infrastructure is keeping up, how just the civilian population are keeping the country running. And you don't sense uh, and I wasn't here in the first two weeks when obviously it was very different, but at this point, three and a half weeks into the war, you don't sense any kind of desperation here you've There's a lot of confidence, a lot of optimism actually. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe part of that uh, optimism has to do with the fact that, as you said, more than three weeks in Kiev is still standing. Um, you wrote an interesting column for us saying that while the Russian tanks don't uh, look like they're heading into Kiev, Putin can still destroy that uh, beautiful uh, ancient city uh, in Odessa, uh, which I think is even more beautiful where you guys uh, came from. Um, so perhaps this is a, in a weird sense, a bit of a calm before even a bigger storm. Well, the real question is how far Putin is prepared to go to escalate this because 
what seems clear now is that he can't capture these main cities of Ukraine and the capital using ground forces unless he uh, employs really all the firepower Russia has. And even the firepower, the conventional firepower, is much more limited than, than was expected before the war because Ukraine has managed to, to uh, keep some of its air superiority in the skies. So the, the scope for the Russian Air Force to launch waves of bombers is limited. The same is true for ground-to-round uh, missiles. It seems that the, that the the number of these missiles, the long-range risk missiles that Russians have, is not as great as as was thought. There's been uh, over a thousand missile attacks, but not the numbers people feared here. And the one type of artillery that the Russians really have a lot of is these batteries of Grand and MLRS rockets that they can bring uh, up towards the front and fire salvos of rockets from. But they, you know, these need to be a lot closer to the front. In a country the size of Ukraine, get, getting enough of these batteries close to, uh, to a strategic point isn't that simple for the Russians. And also the Ukrainian army has its ambushes waiting there. And uh, you know, they've destroyed a lot of these batteries. The firepower that Russia has isn't as immense or, or, or as effective as, uh, as was thought. And that kind of leaves Putin with, uh, you know, with a, a dilemma, whether he uses more of the less accurate rockets that he has, if he can somehow put them into position, or does he use the one type of weapon that the Ukrainians would have no answer against, and that's a tactical nuclear weapon. And we know that Russia has, still has thousands of, the, of those weapons. And that's the you know, that's the wild card of this war. Putin's already done the unthinkable by launching such a massive invasion of of Ukraine. Now that it seems to be be bogging down and not going anywhere, will he once again do the unthinkable? And for the first time in seventy seven years, would a, a nuclear weapon be used at time of war? Well, not many optimistic scenarios here. One thing that we at Haaretz have been writing a lot about is the Israeli approach toward the war. Uh, and we heard some complaints from the Ukrainian government or parts of it uh, about Israel's, uh, whether it's mediation attempt or fear to stand up to Russia. Um, what are the reactions that you are receiving on the ground when you identify as a journalist from an Israeli newspaper? So the first thing I'd say is that every Ukrainian I've met here Who has seen my Israeli passport has been very positive very friendly towards us there's a, there really is a very high level of admiration here towards Israel I think many Ukrainians see Israel as a model for a country living independently and prospering surviving certainly in an inhospitable environment and they would like to do the same living alongside uh, Russia and uh, that's I think one cause of uh, of the admiration all kinds of interesting things anecdotes about how people in Kiev see uh, Israel's late Prime Minister Golda Meir as one of theirs because she was born in Kiev and uh, people quote her, read her biographies. You know, there are also quite a lot of people here who are of Jewish uh, ancestry. I think many more than any of the Jewish organizations seem to realize because you know, we seem to meet them the whole time. People saying, oh, I have a sister in Natania and a brother in uh, in Batiam. So there's that as well. But you also do hear occasionally from people here saying, why won't Israel send us uh, Iron Dome? Why is Israel make, making it difficult for 
Ukraine refugees take shelter in Israel. And even when you hear that, it's not something, it doesn't come instead of this very warm feeling. They have to do this, but it's more of a disappointment than an accusation. Um, so, I, I mean, that's my general impression. And obviously, it's anecdotal because I haven't been to all Ukraine and I haven't spoken to all Ukrainians, but from the places we've been to, and since you have to show your passport here <laughs> almost at every moment, then a lot of people we met knew exactly where we were coming from. You've covered many conflicts for Haaretz over the years uh, here in Israel, but uh, also around the world. What is unique, different about this war uh, that you and Ohad have been covering for us in the last few days on the ground? Well, for, you know, from a military perspective, with the exception of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, in, you know, this is the first time in 19 years that we've had two large modern conventional armies uh, fighting each other. And that's something that, from the military perspective, is unique here. But the thing is that we don't really get to see any of that. And what... What the Ukrainians have done, and I think that for us as journalists, it's a bit frustrating, obviously, they've managed to seal off the front line. There is almost no way that journalists can get there to the front line. And if you look at the, the, the images coming from the front lines, they're all being made by either by soldiers or by civilians who are somewhere have stuck there and being put on, on social media. But no mainstream media has actually been there on the sharp end where the Ukrainian army and the Russian army are fighting it out. And the reasons the Ukrainian government have done that, they say it's to, it's to you know, preserve our safety. I think there's also some very clever media management going on that they want the, the image to be that Ukraine is, is fighting on the battlefield is fighting successfully. Therefore, they don't want any images of wounded Ukrainian soldiers and, and you know, less positive military images from their perspective. And they want the focus to be on the civilian casualties, of which, of course, there are many. And that is something that you know, they're both showing themselves with their own uh, media channels, and you know, they're allowing us much more to see that. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of unique, because in most wars that I've covered, both in Israel and in other countries, even if the government is, uh, you know, is trying to prevent you from getting there, there are usually much easier ways to get kind of close up to the front line in Ukraine, I think the government is both doing a very, very effective job of sealing it off. And, you, and also, Ukraine is a massive country. It's larger than France. And it's the biggest country in Europe after Russia. That is, you know, that is very true. You can be close to the front line and still be 50, 60 kilometers away. And that's something that a lot of the coverage here is done about civilian affairs. And what we write about the war, we're writing on the basis of both of what the armies are saying what we can try and find out from our, our sources and a lot of stuff being posted in social media, but nobody, with, with really very, very, very few exceptions, no journalists have actually seen the fighting up close. Anshul, before we uh, let you go back to doing your amazing work over there, and we are expecting some more great stories in the coming days, how do you anticipate this thing ends? Do you have any faith in the negotiations that we're hearing about? Some of them with Israeli mediation, but also through other channels. Uh, do you think the sides are getting ready to what it would take for a compromise? Or are we still looking at a months-long event here? I don't think that the compromise or the agreement that's already been leaked in various reports about, of, of what an agreement would look like is something that either side are prepared to, to sign right now. The Russians, or, you know, one Russian has invested here his entire military in trying to achieve, what Putin still hopes, 
is uh, going to be the subjugation of, of Ukraine, making it into a vassal state, making it clear that it's not a, a, an independent entity. He's, he's so invested in that, I don't see how he can back down from that in any major way. And at the same time, the Ukrainians are feeling that despite the, this, this really incredible, uh, this immense suffering that, that, their, that their nation is, is taking now, they feel that, that they've managed to stand up to, to, to the great Russian army and that they're already talking about, we are winning. I'm not quite sure what a victory would look like yet, but the, I don't think they're in a place that they can contemplate what would be rather humiliating terms in, in a ceasefire or a peace agreement at this point. So I, yeah, it's impossible to predict, but it's hard for me to see right now how either side uh, signed such an agreement. And another word about the Ukrainians, I think that, that they have managed to, uh, I said before how the country is still functioning thanks to millions of civilians you know, really working very hard. They feel that they've put so much effort into standing up to, to, to the Russian army and keeping their country functioning. Yeah, I, I think I just don't think they're, they're capable of accepting that humiliation, not just the government, but many people I've spoken to. And also they still have the trauma of 2014 when when the Russians took Crimea basically without a fight and also invaded eastern Ukraine and took the, the enclaves around Donetsk and Lugansk, which were also showed up a very poor performance of the Ukrainian army. So they also have this feeling that they need to somehow atone for the national humiliation of 2014. And almost in every conversation here with Ukrainians about what happened in 2014 is not going to happen again. So to accept an, a deal which would allow Russia to, to, to keep most of its territorial gains, certainly keep uh, Crimea and Lugansk and, and Donetsk, and also to have sort of a say on dictating Ukraine's foreign policy in the future, I think that's something that, that, that they're finding it very difficult to contemplate. Anshul Pfeffer, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and for your excellent reports from Ukraine. And again, we encourage the listeners to go to arts.com. Uh, get a writer alert for Anshil and to keep following his reporting and also see of Hans Weigenberg's amazing photographs from the ground. Uh, stay safe over there, Anshil. Thank you. We'll try. Thanks for having us. After the break, conversation about China's relationship with Russia and how it could impact the war in Ukraine. Three weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while the Russian economy is suffering under crushing sanctions from the United States and the West, the eyes of the world are turning to China, the one country that Putin hopes can still redeem his failing economy, and that the United States is now pressuring not to join in any way the Russian war effort. Uh, Alon Pincas, senior columnist for Haaretz, has written several articles about the Chinese angle of this war, and he's joining us today to discuss this interesting issue. Hi, Alon. Hi, Amir. Good to be with you. So... In your most recent article, you make the argument that Vladimir Putin is turning from an asset to a liability for Beijing. Explain that, please, to our listeners. Well, he's turning from a, uh, from a promising asset, not yet a full asset, to a definite and tangible liability. And, and I'll explain. Uh, the, Ch- the Chinese and the Russians, who do not share any uh, historical sympathies or affinities, And they have had their share of conflicts, both feel um, shortchanged by the international system, by American dominance, and they believe each for its own reasons. China as the ascendant uh, superpower and Russia as a former superpower trying to restore its, its, its stature. 
They both feel that the current international system is not reflective of China's rise, uh, Russia's legitimate claims, and America's decline. And so they each try and challenge the international order, and they each try to do it in their respective sphere of influence. The Russians went first in Ukraine. Now, there is a fallacy out there, Amir, according to which the Chinese had plans tangible, confirmable plans to invade Taiwan, and all they were waiting for is to see how well Putin does in Ukraine. That's That, I think, is unfounded. There's absolutely no evidence. But uh, there is evidence to a tacit understanding between the two countries that they each, in their respective sphere of influence, as I said, as I mentioned before, will challenge the U.S. And the Chinese were looking at what Putin is going to do. Number two, Putin uh, disappointed the Chinese. A, apparently, based on evidence, scant evidence, but nonetheless evidence that we can collect, the Chinese were surprised, as many of us were surprised, that Putin launched a full-scale invasion. They thought that he was playing a game of brinkmanship, that he's trying to extract from NATO compromises, and they were watching with astonishment how uh, the U.S. under President Biden was effectively strengthening NATO, rebuilding an alliance, redefining a threat slash enemy, Russia, and not only laying out, but actually making clear the plan to impose devastating sanctions on Russia. And the Chinese were waiting. Now, if we go by the timeline, on the 4th of February, the day of the opening of the Beijing Winter Olympics, Putin was in Beijing, hosted by Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. And not only did they celebrate the opening of the uh, Olympic Games, but they also celebrated the uh, signing of a strategic memorandum of partnership. And in a public statement, you know, both of them standing there grinning with huge flags of China and Russia behind them. And this football field sized uh, oil painting of the wall of China. She declares that the friendship between China and Russia has no limits. It seems like perhaps today maybe he regrets that. a little bit, that dramatic statement. Exactly. By the 22nd of February, when Putin announced the uh, de facto annexation of Luhansk and Donetsk, the two provinces in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region, uh, the Chinese were kind of perplexed, but still thinking, okay, this must be part of the uh, brinkmanship game. He's going to do this and try to tease the West. We, the Chinese, think he's miscalculating the Western response, but we'll wait and see. On the 24th of February, he launched a full-scale invasion. And then came uh, 21 days, leading to uh, more or less today, in which uh, Russia not only is subject to the worst and most uh, um, extensive and expansive sanctions in history, but is also failing militarily, uh, dismally. And the Chinese, whose military is inexperienced, technologically very good, but inexperienced, and is based on Soviet and now Russian doctrines, is looking at this with a lot of apprehension. All that said, I have to add one more thing before you continue. China sees Putin, not Russia, by the way, Putin, as a liability does not mean that they will sever ties with him because the, the, a worse possibility for them is to be seen as uh, doing what the Americans are telling them to do. And in that respect, I'm not sure about it, but there's a case to be made nonetheless, 
that the Americans uh, have somewhat exaggerated in their public pressure of China. Uh, the Chinese cannot conceivably do something just because the Americans publicly demanded that they do it. Yeah, maybe, it's, maybe it actually has an, an opposite effect, uh, that if it's something that the Americans are asking for, it becomes much more difficult to, to actually do because of the political ramifications at home. You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, there is a counter argument that says that unless you call their bluff and, and, and uh, unmask what they do, you, you'll never know on which side they are. And if you accuse them or criticize them or, or divulge that as, as U.S. Uh, national security advisor Jake Sullivan did last week in Rome, that they are actually contemplating and considering military aid to Russia, It forced them to deny it, and they probably will not go through with it. They may be angry, but that's something that the Americans had in mind to begin with and took into consideration. I'm not saying it's a clear-cut case of they should have or they should not have done it. In an earlier article, you made the argument that China is the one power in the world that can actually make Putin stop this war. Explain the logic behind that argument. Okay, fine, I'll try. Because the argument or the article made sense to me when it was written. Based on Chinese behavior and uh, actions since, it appears um, either I was wrong or, conversely, uh, the Chinese are not up to the challenge. The argument was as follows. Amir. The argument was that China is the only country rich enough to bail uh, Putin out of the sanctions and expose itself to sanctions, uh, which China does not want to do because the Chinese economy, thriving and ascendant as it is, Is, is very much dependent on the Western economies. And they are very wary and anxious about the so-called Malacca dilemma, that an American naval blockade of the Malacca Straits dividing uh, Malaysia and Indonesia will deprive China of, of uh, critical imports. And secondly, that China has the diplomatic levers to uh, um, compel Putin to stop when it will tell him, okay, Enough is enough. You gave it your best. It didn't work. It's time to negotiate. And in that respect, that doesn't necessarily mean that China is on America's side or by the U.S., but rather that China is elevating itself to America's level in terms of who manages the world, you know, the, uh, the steering committee of global affairs. And China, since that article, which I don't, I don't even remember, it was 10 days ago, I think, Um, since then, China has done nothing to make me look good in terms of the argument. Well, the question, I think, is maybe they just are not interested. Is there an argument to make that at the end of the day, maybe they want to give Putin more time? Despite everything that has gone wrong for him so far, he can still cause such damage in Ukraine that we might be talking differently in a few weeks. Yes, uh, 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 that's, a, that's a valid argument. I mean, there are sinologists, which I am not one of, uh, experts on China, who say that in the end, China, uh, China's MO, their modus operandi is patience and, and never being too quick to adopt the policy, but rather wait until the absolute last moment. And secondly, that severing ties with Putin's Russia at this point, I mean, severing it in, in a very public way, An unequivocal way is counterproductive to China's interests, which would be, in this case, a very weakened Russia. Now, this leads us to a very interesting, however tragic conclusion, that both the U.S. and China share one interest that they will never say out loud and, and in public, 
and that is that the war go on for a few more weeks. They each, for their own interests and from their own vantage point, want a weakened Russia, and if possible, a, a coup d'etat that would get rid of uh, Putin, something I have no idea about the feasibility of, but this is what they both would, would love to see. An injured Russia, but then on the other hand, some people say that cornered Putin becomes also a more dangerous one. And again, the nuclear aspect gets into the conversation here. Okay, let me be somewhat heretic here. I've followed closely all the talk about the nuclear option and the, the possibility or viability of Putin using it. I happen to think, and I have zero evidence to uh, support me on this, just a hunch that if he does give an order to use a nuclear weapon, uh, the, the, the Russian uh, military will resist and, and disobey the order. Why? I mean, they know the truth. They may play the game. They may be scared of Putin. They may be uh, um, hunted and persecuted by his cronies and the FSB, but they will not risk a nuclear retaliation. There are various levels of nuclear war. I mean, we're not looking at Russia launching a missile into uh, New York or Los Angeles. We're looking at them using perhaps a tactical nuclear weapon inside Europe. But that would be a casus belli. That would be, that would be a justification and a cause for NATO to operate and to respond with uh, a similar force and similar firepower. And I doubt the Russian military would allow Putin to do that. But again, mm -hmm. I know it's a heretic view, and I know that if it does happen, I'll feel silly for saying that they would have... Uh... <laughs> Alon, I'll say if it does happen, this will be the least of our problems. But we really hope you're not wrong on this one. Let's put it that way. Fine, I'll take that. Uh, last question. Um, when we look at this from the Israeli point of view, the emerging great power competition, the maybe declining role of Russia, and we've heard over the years complaints from Washington about Israel's uh, relationship with China. What are the conclusions that we over here can take from this big picture that you painted for us? Well, ironically, Amir, if Israel had issues with the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis our relations with China, Now Israel has an issue with the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis our relations with Russia, too. So, so I think that there is a callous miscalculation on Israel's part here in terms of its uh, uh, stance on, on the issue. Now, uh, let's break this down in, in, in a few short sentences. During the crisis, when, when Putin was amassing uh, troops around Ukraine and just threatening war, It made diplomatic and political sense for Israel not to take sides. The Europeans were standing by the U.S., and NATO was gradually being consolidated and strengthened. And because Israel has some limited, I think the government is grossly exaggerating their importance, but I'll take their argument here, because Israel has uh, um, operational, not strategic, operational considerations with Russia concerning the coordination of fly zones over Syria and over pro-Iranian or Iranian targets in that uh, um, area, and because Israel has a working relationship with Putin, and because there are 1.2 million Jews who came from Russia in this country, Israel had a multi-layered uh, sensitive idea. Once Putin invaded Ukraine, um, Israel should have uh, hopped immediately off the fence it was sitting on and stood by the U.S., Instead, Israel reinvented itself as a mediator, which for the life of me, I don't understand why it, anyone would need Israel. And, and I, by the way, 
I, I do not for a second doubt Prime Minister Bennett's good intentions. I am doubting the uh, prudence of uh, inserting yourself unsolicited as some kind of a mediator when Putin wants to negotiate with NATO and the U.S., not with Ukraine. And, you know, if Israel at some point is helpful in negotiating a ceasefire or a uh, partial cessation of hostilities, good for Mr. Bennett. But I think he did not win points in America. And in terms of our relations with China, that hasn't been affected yet. I, I think, and this perhaps Amir deserves a different podcast, if you want to look at what happens to someone who gets on America's wrong side and courts China, then, then you look at the Emirates. Mm-hmm. Alon Pinkas, thank you for a fascinating conversation. And uh, again, uh, we invite the, the listeners to keep following Alon's writing on this evolving crisis on Haaretz.com. Thank you, Amir. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you, listeners. My colleague, Alison Kaplan-Sommer, will be here again on Friday with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.